Hey friends, welcome to the Aching Joy podcast. It's uh, it's episode seven, but this is the first time we're gonna we're gonna do video with uh, with the podcast. We'll see how it goes. Um, maybe we'll do it again. Maybe not. But uh, I'm excited about my guest, Carrie Cariello. Uh, she's one of my favorite bloggers out there. If you've been around the autism blogosphere for any length of time, you've probably heard of her because she she just writes beautifully. Um, she's been. She's been blogging faithfully every single week for years now, and she has two books. Uh, one's called What Color is Monday, and the other is uh, Someone I'm With Has Autism. Uh, she's an elegant writer, and she's an honest writer, and she has a lot of really good stuff to say uh, about parenting and about finding sanctuary uh, in this uh, you know difficult time we're in in the COVID season and in general for, for caregiver parents. Uh, I've been I've been a, a reader of Carrie's for for a long time, and I really admire her work. Uh, and this is the first time I've ever had the privilege of, of talking to her. So I'm very excited to introduce you to Carrie Cariello. Carrie, thank you so much for coming on. This is a real treat. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about your son Jack, uh, who's on the spectrum, uh, and a little bit about your family? So my family. Well, we're in New Hampshire. Um, my husband's a dentist and we have five kids and I have four boys and one girl. And a lot of people think that the girl is the youngest and she isn't because we had an appointment with a doctor to have no more kids. And then that doctor canceled. And then we had our youngest, a 10 pound, four ounce baby boy. Wow. So Jack is our second son. He was diagnosed, you know, around 18 months. So right now the ages are my oldest is 17, 16, 14, 13, and 11. And yeah, we're, we're fun, busy. We're, we're, we're a household of a lot of personality. That's what I like to say. We run at a 10. I would like to run at more of a six, but right. nobody else seems to agree with me. <laughs> so when was Jack diagnosed? So he was diagnosed. Uh, he was just shy, about 18 months old. So November 2009, if I have that right. Is that right? No, no, I'm sorry. 2005. 2005. Okay. Yes. Sorry. So, when, so we were when, kind of on the cusp of it. Yeah, I was I, just what I was thinking. It seems like right around that time when people started sort of understanding a little bit more about what autism was. Oh, I didn't know anything about autism except for a movie, and it wasn't actually Rain Man. It was a movie oh, called no. um, Mercury Rising with Bruce Willis. I've heard of it, but I haven't watched it. Oh okay. yeah, I mean it's it's a great kind of you know bang bang shoot 'em up, but it, it's it's you know about a kid who's on the spectrum who is you know obviously an uber genius because that's the only thing that that's the only side that Hollywood was interested in I think in that early on. The good doctor. I, right, and I remember early on thinking like this is a fascinating thing, and I just that that plot always stuck with me. But that's all that I knew about it. So how much did you know when you got the diagnosis? So I knew nothing when I got the diagnosis. Let me back up and say when his symptoms became really apparent, um, and that was early on, I mean, two to three months, my inner like radar said, mm, something is not quite on par here. And remember, I have a son just about exactly a year older. So I already knew what that benchmark should look like through the course of a year, you know, when he should start hiding our shoes or, or, or you know, like play patty cake and all of that. So when the red flag started to appear, and never, I didn't immediately think autism. I just thought something is off. He's not connected with us at all. Uh, he really is so independent of any of our interactions and, and the sleep and all of those sort of hallmark details. By the time we got the diagnosis, I, ha I had read a little bit about it, enough to know this is probably what it is. 
but same, my only information came from Rain Man. Mm -hmm. That's all I knew about autism. I didn't know a single person who had it. Looking back, I probably knew somebody who was kind of on the spectrum at some point in my life, but I didn't know any children who had it. Mm -hmm. So we came with kind of a blank canvas, which in retrospect worked for us because we thought he was going to outgrow it. And that's just how we put our foot forward every day. Like we just have to get him over this hum. Hmm. And sometimes being naive, I think, is useful. Hmm. That's interesting. How yeah. long did the naivete last? When I did you realize that it was it was brilliant people here? So. No, no, no. I, I mean, I just no. mean like you know <laughs> when, when I had I had Kate Swinson on, another of our mutual friends, and uh, her video when she it was that went mega mega viral was when she first realized, oh wow this this is real and this is not just going to go away and i think a lot of us have had those kind of moments of like oh, this is a bigger deal than i thought um, yeah. uh, so do you remember a point when that happened or how long did that season last i didn't have a hallmark like a light bulb moment uh, the way she did for sure but it was sort of a slow tearing down like okay now we're looking at a special school you know yeah. way back when in preschool okay now we have all these different therapies we have to incorporate and his progress i always describe it as stair steps it's a couple jumps up and then he plateaus i think during the plateaus i was really like we are in for a different experience than we thought and i was also kind of mired in the day to day I was working and just having small kids. So I, the day I found out he was diagnosed, the very next day I learned I was pregnant with my fourth child, my daughter. So, and, and that was much of a blessing. I didn't have the time or energy to simply zero in on him but he certainly took up a fair amount of time but we were just, we were just moving. <laughs> there was a lot of moving parts over here. Yeah. Yeah. How did, uh, how did your husband react? You know, he was, he, we reacted much differently. I think I remember sitting up really late one night with Jack. We lived in Buffalo, New York then. And I was rocking him on the couch and just saying, something is wrong. Like there's something's not right here. And my husband's the youngest of six, like this really robust, healthy Italian family. There was, there's no blips on the radar there. So this was really new for him too. And I was just writing about this the other day um, in terms of approaching your life in a non-autism way versus an autism way and the way that goals have to adjust. And uh, we each bring our point of view to it differently every single day. He, um, you know, in the beginning, he resisted a little bit. He really thought Jack just needed a little bit more time and he was going to work him through this. And he grieved much different things than I did. I do remember I was scrambling to find a preschool in Buffalo. Now, again, this is kind of on the cusp of what I consider the autism explosion. So I would call a specialist and they would say, well, we could see you in eight months. And I thought, well, we'll be done. He'll be done by eight months, you know, or I would have to get on a waiting list for a preschool that had very few openings. So I finally got us into this preschool and I came home and said to Joe, okay, he starts, you know, next week at such and such. And he was like, looked at me like I had never spoken a word of autism in my life. Like, what do you mean this is where I don't want this? So there were definitely times our lines were crossed and continued to be. I heard you and, and uh, when you were on with Kate Swenson the other day and you, you, you were talking about the season of grief and mm -hmm. you just mentioned that again. And um, 
that can be kind of a uh, almost a polarizing word in this whole realm nowadays. Um, but I admire you guys for saying it and uh, for for acknowledging it. So can you can you unpack what you mean by grief and what you don't mean? Oh, sure. So grief to me, as it relates to autism, is not this huge um, explosive concept. It is to me, and I said this to Kate, just a series of small paper cuts as I move through life with him. Um, it's learning that another 16 year old in our town got a driver's license. It's watching another kiddo bounce a basketball in the corner with a friend. It sort of just makes me catch my breath for a moment. Yeah. Um, I would not say grief is a setback. So if we're talking about what grief isn't, it, it doesn't set me back. Um, it is just a sensation that I allow myself and more and more he's starting to allow himself Jack because He's, uh, you know, verbal. He's fairly plugged into the world. And for the first time yesterday, he told somebody, I'm on the spectrum, you know, mm. which was really interesting. But he's seeing his peers kind of move along without him. And so he's also experiencing the same kind of like, life is just going to look differently for me. Mm. Mm. I, I think um, in my experience, and... I guess you can't talk about these things without sort of painting with a broad brush. Mm -hmm. um, but in my experience, um, husbands and, and wives, mothers and fathers, uh, they tend to deal with the diagnosis with different sorts of grief. Um, in my case, um, I wish I had been, I, I, when you talk about having sort of an optimistic outlook, like this won't be a very long thing. Um, I almost wish I had had that because I had this sort of Im immediate sense of doom. Like mm. uh, I went to a pretty dark sort of place for quite a while and because I was, uh, I, I just would look at the worst case scenarios and I was dealing with a bunch of other stuff at the time too, when I was just like waiting for shoes to drop for everything. Mm. Um, but I got super distant. Whereas my wife, her sort of process was to go after everything. We're going to, we are going to yeah. figure this out. We're going to, uh, uh, and it, the more that I've talked to other families and in conferences and things, the more I've seen this play out of the mom who says, we're going to do this like the bulldog mom and the distant dad. Yeah. Um, did you guys experience that sort of uh, dynamic? In the very beginning in that preschool, like is the perfect example of that. I was in yeah. it. We are going to, we're going to attack this. And Joe sort of being dumbfounded because yeah. he went a little underground as now we've been married 22 years as of last week. And as it's kind of developed, my husband is a fixer. He is right. gonna, he's gonna not, not like, oh, I have to fix Jack. There's something wrong with him. Sure. He's a doer. That's probably a yes. better way to say it. So an occupational therapist once told me that a mother's job is to keep her children close, her baby birds close, and a father's job is to push them out of the nest. And what day after day I marvel about my husband is there, he does not think there's anything Jack can't do. And so mm -hmm. if our other boys go up on the roof to hang Christmas lights, Jack's up there with them. Jack pumps gas when Joe's there. You know, things I really wouldn't do. Right. I don't need the whole town to go up in flames when Jack spills a gas leak on the place. Right. Yeah. He believes in him differently. Neither one of us believe in him more or less, but we believe in him much differently. And I think over time, I've come to really appreciate that. 
Yeah, I, I, that's really admirable. Um, I, I like the way you write about your husband. Um, he, he seems like just a wonderful guy. And it, th that, whole, <laughs> that, that whole thing I think is rare because for, for him to continue to believe, and that's been a difficult thing for me to do with, with our son is I can, I can quickly sort of settle into this like, this is as far as it goes. And it's it, my wife will be the one pushing, going, no, look, look, look. And so I think there's a little bit of uh, optimism versus pessimism sort of working through there uh, in, our, in our relationship. And, and a dose of reality, right? I mean, we, sure. we, we have to check ourselves. Like, yeah, when we're, we're starting to face really big concepts of independent living. Yeah. Um, yeah. What a future holds. And, and so, you know, we have to stay close to reality of who he is and who right. he might become. Right. And I'm not, I'm very open about that. Joe and I had a fantastic marriage counselor for like five years and we went every Monday. And then after that, we went out for dinner and it was like the highlight of our week. And the guy, oh, he was so special. He said, you're done now. Like it's time to go. And I was <laughs> like hanging on to his ankles. Like what? We can't come back here. And he really helped us see the best in one another. And I always encourage parents or of any kind of kid that you have. I mean, this is not an easy road parenting together. Yeah. And if your car was having trouble, you would go to a mechanic and, you know, you go to the eye doctor because you don't know anything about eyeballs. So why wouldn't you go to somebody who has seen a hundred marriages in his lifetime? And that has, that was life changing for us. That's really cool because I, I think there's still a lot of times a bit of a, a bit of trepidation there with parents of like, if we go to counseling, that means things are serious. We're done. It's a stigma for sure. Now yeah. I have an Italian husband, right? Like straight up Catholic, you know, very conservative. Yeah. And he agreed. He gave, didn't mind at all. And then once he got in there, Jason, he was like, oh, yes. <laughs> you were raised in a small town, you know, like really embraced it. <laughs> Which I give him a lot of credit for. You know yeah. what this man did for us, this counselor? Week after week, he'd say, you love each other. You love mm -hmm. each other. And th that simple sentence propelled us past so much BS that yeah. comes with raising a small family or yeah. a young family. And yeah, I can't reckon. I don't know why people don't go. I miss it terribly. <laughs> <laughs> It's also nice to store up all your grievances and then run to your counselor and think like he's going to take your side. <laughs> and, and did he? No. <laughs> so my middle child, Charlie, looks exactly like my husband, Joe. My daughter, Rose, people say looks like me. Their coloring is similar to us. And they were sitting there bickering the other night and Joe and I were trying to get to the bottom of what the problem was. And I'm like, this is what Dr. Goss faced every week. <laughs> like mm. this version of ourselves. You that know? is funny. It's funny. It's it all funny. comes back on us eventually, doesn't it? Karma. <laughs> <laughs> my oldest, Emily, she has so many of my tendencies and sometimes she'll be, she'll be trying something out. And she, she's, she just graduated. Oh, good. Oh my God. So you have yeah. quite a difference between. Yeah. Yeah, mine, mine are a little spread out a little more than yours. Um, I, my oldest is 18 and my youngest is uh, about to turn nine. Um, okay. So, and we've been, we've been married 21 years. So we, we got started out um, pretty much right away. Um, and, uh, but it is, it is funny how, you know, you'll see the, you'll see the things inside your kids that sudden, and, and they think they're being really clever. They think, <laughs> 
they think they've got you. And I'm like, stop it. I know exactly what you're thinking. Like, I know, I know, I know because I thought that way too. I and know. I still do. Or you know? teaching them, you know, it's a lifelong process of parenting to teaching them how to edit themselves. We have some funny yeah. people in this family. I said to my oldest who's 17 the other day, you know, you really got to get, you got to start pushing my book more. I make $4 a book and that's going to be your college fund. And he said, okay, I'll call all my friends and see if they want any firewood. <laughs> so I'm laughing wow. and I'm like, hey. Wow. A wee. <laughs> yeah. And the, so the snarkiness comes back at you. Yeah. And that's how I rolled the whole time, which is why the, it's so shocking that the good Lord above would give me a Jack who yeah. it's, you know, he's just now getting like tuning into tone and snark and yes. sarcasm. Yeah, I we were playing categories as a family a, a little while ago. That. Isn't that a fun game? Yeah. Oh, it's so fun. So I think one was like, uh, or actually, it might have been a different game, but whatever it was, it was like to put it a, a, a yeah, it was a different game, but it was a replacement for toilet paper. And and my, I mean, it was my eleven year old said, "Aching joy." <laughs> my boy. I was like, you punk, you punk. Yeah. And you want to, so that is the difference between the way husband to parents, uh, we refer to my husband as two ways. He's a dentist and his license plate says painless. So we refer to him as painless. I refer to him too, or the patriarch. So the patriarch has less room for that. And he's smart in some ways because I, um, I don't want to say I let them be my friends, but I allow a banter that might dismantle any kind of respect they would have <laughs> You know, my oldest, you can appreciate this, maybe, went on a camping trip two days ago and called. He had, he had put the car in a ditch. I saw this. Yeah. And he, before he called us, he, called, he arranged the tow truck. He called the insurance company. He, you know, put all the pieces together. And people were sort of impressed with that. And I said, you don't come at the patriarch without a plan in this house. You don't come to him with a problem that you don't have some semblance of a solution to. Mm -hmm. So I always thought Joe was a little bit strict growing up when they were, you know, really little, but I am starting to see there's payoff with teenagers. Sure. Yeah. They don't want to disappoint him. They don't care at all if they disappoint me at all. <laughs> <laughs> but, but dad. <laughs> your, uh, I, I love your, your posts with your kids. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, you, you always put up great pictures, you beautiful family. And then you always have those new England leaves, which I'm a little jealous of. <gasps> They are beautiful, yeah. Yeah, they are. Um, tell us a little bit about the dynamic of your other four kids with Jack. Yeah, people ask me that a lot, and it's a great question because um, two things. When Jack was first diagnosed, like I said, I was having my fourth, and so many people said the best thing you could do is give him a big family. Now, that's not to say we didn't worry with each succeeding child that we were going to have, you know, another diagnosis, but. Um, it, with Jack as a part of this group really has been the best thing. He cannot run the show here. You know, we have a lot of other opinions and people that, you know, have thoughts about what movie we're going to watch or what we're going to eat. So that's been fantastic. Individually, they all relate to him very, very differently. I'm sure that's the case in your house too. You know, my oldest plays really a pretty typical role of a leader and a caregiver and somebody who's always been watchful of him. My third son, Charlie, who is just, is just a like a fun kid, is the one that'll sort of push Jack to do things like throw a ball outside or, you know, jump off the diving board. Mm -hmm. My daughter, Rose, is the most sensitive to Jack. And like, 
I call her the canary in the mine, you know, that metaphor. She's always perceiving his energy kind of as her own, which mm -hmm. I worry could be at a cost to herself sometimes. Yeah. She, in our house, we describe autism as a listener's language because you have to listen more to what he doesn't say than what he is telling you. Mm -hmm. And out of all of us, she's the best at that, at kind of reading his body. And then our youngest, Henry, you know, he's a, he's a big personality. He's kind of an in-your-face, I'm going to do it my way, kind of that bulldozer mentality. Um, he and Jack are the ones that are going to argue the most right now. Here goes my dog. Hello. <laughs> All right, there's instructions on how to keep him calm. <laughs> I can hear it. Like, we just we just got one uh, last year Ooh, that we're training oh, up as a therapy dog, and uh, so is it a golden he or she? Uh, yeah, it's a, a she. She's a labradoodle. Um, and so the training is to help Jack what? Just kind of keep his body calm and. Well, the training is is with the the dog right now. Like she's okay. getting full on obedience, and then you know all the rest of the. She's she's not even a year yet, so she's been going through a lot of the sort of the puppy stuff. But she's doing so well, really, really mm. well. But yeah, uh, we're we're gonna start shifting a little bit more to. Uh, you know, with, with Jack exclusively, um, we're, we're having him take more walks with her where he's tied to her and all kinds of stuff. Wow. Um, but, uh, yeah, he was scared to death of her at first, but, uh, they're, they're, they're doing really, really well. That's yeah. exceptional. The hardest yeah. part is all of us. We're going to have to sort of like, let go, release her a little bit as Jack's dog. Oh, as his. <laughs> you might have to get a second. No, 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 Carrie. I'm editing out of that podcast because my kid. No, you know my kids do not listen to this podcast, so there's no, uh, there's no leverage. No, yet. mine are begging me too. I said one and done. I yeah. first of all, this dog is my whole heart. I don't know if you saw on Facebook that Joe and I actually came down to like, well, if we got a divorce, who, who is would take the dog? Is yours a golden doodle? No, he's a little thing. He's a half Shizu, half Bijan. Okay. He's called a teddy bear dog, but he has captured all of our hearts. And we got him because Jack was so afraid of dogs way back when, seven um, years ago. Yeah. That we thought foolishly, we'll just get one then. Yeah. And, and remarkably, it worked. Now, I did say I found a breeder that had like a lifetime return policy so that if it just didn't work out, we could return him. Yeah. That's... But he he's everything to us so yeah. but my kids keep asking for a second and i said no first of all i'm against pandemic puppies no big decisions should be made during this time of life <laughs> whether it's a baby right. which is that ship has sailed here but no big decisions <laughs> and i tell my people you're gone soon i got like six years of this left right you're you're not far behind me that's right that's right when you get your own place you Get an iguana get an for all I care. Hundred percent. Yeah. Get an alpaca. <laughs> I don't care what you do, but you're not doing it here. Hey, I hope you're enjoying the interview. I want to hit pause real quick to remind you of my book, Aching Joy: Following God Through the Land of Unanswered Prayer. This is a book I wrote, of course, about my own journey with my son as he went into his fog of autism. I went into my own sort of fog as well of sadness and, and, and trying to make sense of my life and trying to reorient my life. Uh, but it's not a book strictly for autism parents. Uh, it's really for anyone who's going through that season of saying, what in the world has happened to my expectations? Life is going to look different now. Uh, and particularly those uh, of those people of faith who say, 
you know, I've prayed and I, I, I've called out to God for something to change and nothing's changing. What do I do now? So I hope you'll check it out, uh, achingjoy.com. Uh, you can read more about it there. It, it, it did win uh, an award last year. It won the Cascade Award for Best Memoir. And my mom tells me it's, it's really good. So anyway, check it out. Now back to the interview. I want to talk a little bit about your, um, your writing. Um, you, you, you and I sort of, I think, have taken a little bit of a similar tact, although you are so much more faithful in your writing than I am. Because um, I routinely just get kind of fed up with it and don't write for like four months and then I start again. Um, <laughs> where you, you've been going strong like every Monday for like pretty consistently, yeah, for quite a while. I'll say, and I have been blogging for eight years, a little over eight years. I've never missed a Monday. You've never missed never, a Monday? Never. No, I'm not saying these are all quality, but I've never <laughs> missed a Monday. And I've never had a guest post, which Kate says I should, because I really should increase my base. But I'm very particular. I don't know. I, I just never got a guest post that I, that I put up. But, uh, you know, it's so woven into kind of the, the landscape of my life now. I yeah. would miss it terribly if I didn't do it. And now I started to write a little bit for Kate every week also. Yes. And I do love it. I, there's something, I'm an avid reader. I mean, I read mm -hmm. constantly. So it just weaves together so nicely. And I'm almost, you know, I, this doesn't happen every week, but sometimes I'm like, what if I don't find anything? You know, mm -hmm. I have explored autism from every single angle possible. Right. Right. And then just when I think that, like something sort of comes up that I feel is worth uh, writing about. Yeah. Do you read a lot of autism blogs? Uh, no. Yeah, neither I do I. I don't. It's, it's funny <laughs> to do that because a lot of people have asked me about, we just sat down to watch Love on the Spectrum. A lot of people, you know, that Netflix. People have told me about it, yeah. Yeah, I tend to not immerse myself yeah. in uh, the culture all the time because uh, it's a rabbit hole. Yes. You know, I have a very strict Jason zone out time here where at eight o'clock, I cannot answer questions. I cannot like worry what we're doing tomorrow. I, you know, I really protect that space mm -hmm. for myself. So I don't necessarily want to dial into an autism story. Right. Yeah. Which, you know, it's not my best quality, but. No, no. I actually think that's incredibly wise. I was sitting here thinking like, I, I Okay, this is one thing I wanted to, to get on to is we're in the middle of this pandemic. And I think the connectivity that we all have, um, it, it, you know, not just talking about the autism thing, but all, you know, the entire landscape, especially the online social media landscape, um, we haven't drawn good boundaries at all. Um, and I don't think we know how to draw boundaries. And, and so when the, when the lockdowns start and everything we can't see each other. So the only way we can communicate is online. And now I feel like we're all just sort of gorging ourselves on social media and all of these things. And we're so anxious and we don't know how to do that. But I, I, I'm, I'm the, the, the bits that I've talked to you, it makes me think that you're further along in this than a lot of us are because you have you have rhythms. You even have rhythms of writing. This is the time I'm doing this. Eight o'clock, you're tuning out. You mentioned your yoga time is like mm -hmm. sacred space. Um, how, how, how do those things work in, in your life? And, and do, they, do they create uh, a sort of a sense of sanctuary for you? They create a 100% a sense of sanctuary and freedom and the ability to sort of hold on to who I am while I'm raising these five kids. 
and um, it makes me so much of a better person. But I will say I am a boundary-driven person. That's sort of how I'm wired. I read a great book by an author called Gretchen Rubin who talked about how do you respond to your internal cues versus your external cues, right? So an obliger would say, oh, you want to get coffee tomorrow? Sure. I was going to take a yoga class, but that's you asked me and I'm going to go with you. Gotcha. I'm what's called an upholder where I say, I, Jason, I'd love to have coffee with you. I'm scheduled for yoga from nine to 10. So if we can make it work outside of that, that's, you know, I don't know if you can retrain yourself to become a different personality type, but that is a hundred percent who I am. Mm. And it has served me well. I think from the time my young, my oldest was eight weeks old, my husband and I have gone out every Saturday night. Now it's even, we don't need a sitter anymore because everybody can handle themselves. That's a great transition, isn't it? I love it. You, oh, my life, life changed. <laughs> it's life changing. You know the little milestones along the way when they could buckle in and out of their car seat? That was like a yes. huge for me. Yes. And when you could leave these people alone. I mean, yeah. the independence we gained back. Yeah. But... Uh, I, I set that up. We had regular sitters for years. We had the same young girls that would come to the house for years, every Saturday night at six o'clock. So that was imperative to us to carve out that time. And then for me to be able to carve out my own time, because I'm not sure about your Jack, but my Jack is not very boundary driven, Mm. meaning he would be in my space all the time Mm -hmm. asking questions that really aren't something he needs to know about, or he uses me. I wrote about this a little bit the other day to regulate his own system. So I, it doesn't give me a whole lot of freedom of expression because if he hears me elevate, if I get to an eight, he's at a 10. If I'm at a 10, he's at a 12. So there's some containment that has to go on throughout the day. And I cannot do that till 11 o'clock at night. Right. Right. So care, other caregiving parents, it is, I, I, I mean, I, I feel like with most of our kids, I mean, my Jack is far different than yours. He, he kind of wanders around the house and he's, he's nonverbal. So, uh, and when we try to leave, he gets super anxious. Everything's anyone's leaving. Then he kind of, he, you know, um, so it's a different kind of thing, but it's still there. Uh, you know, the, the, the dependence that that is on us for his well-being um so what would you say to parents out there who are who are in that similar place of like i don't i i I don't know what to do as far as this goes and i don't know how to care for myself do you have any tips this is very practical but just do it just do it i i i don't have any other i mean i hear what you're saying about jack your jack yeah yeah I'm not, I I should never give advice because I have no idea what I'm doing, but I would think it's just something you have to do over and over and over again. I just wrote about this, that, you know, you could remind an undiagnosed child to put his backpack away 300 times. You're going to have to remind a kid like my Jack 30 million times, Yeah. but it will happen. So I, I, I I rejected the idea that I was going to be boxed in by autism. We found the right people. That's true. We also were able to pay a sitter every week. That's not in everybody's wheelhouse. But I was not going to let autism run my life. And uh, I couldn't. And I think my relationship with him is better because of it. Mm. Because, you know, I read somewhere once that autism parents are kind of like soldiers on a battlefield. Jack is verbal, definitely. But 
even now I'm like, all right, where is he? Cause he'll get into the Tide Pods and line them up or he mm-hmm. can open medicine bottles. Mm-hmm. I don't think he would take them, but you know, I'm always have that kind of little weight right here. What's sure. he up to? What's he up to? Yeah. And so I'm, I don't think anybody's meant to do that around the clock. And if they are, I, they're so much better than I am. <laughs> I'm no, not, I, I know. I don't think we are. I know my shutoff switch. I read myself very, very well. Yeah. I, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no. Just one, one of the things of motherhood in general, and I wonder what your wife would think, not even autism related. I never anticipated managing the moods of our house as one of my biggest jobs as a mother. Hmm. Making sure, you know, beyond being fed and well-rested, it's like, all right, this one, this one's a little sad about a school thing and husbands, you know, and, and oldest are kind of at each other. And I carry that emotional weight. And I think it can really like be destructive if you yeah. don't get time. Yeah. Oh, that's an excellent point. And I, I think my wife would definitely, definitely say she feels that too. Um, and it and it's it's interesting to me because if you're if you're a caregiver if you're in a situation like like we are, where so much is already going to be on you because of the extra circumstances that that you have, it just feels to me like why would you want to con- continue to immerse yourself in stress? Why would you would that you don't have to take on? Right. And so that's what impresses me about what you're saying of like shutting stuff off at, at 8 p.m. and things like that. Because I think many of us, we get tired, we get burned out from all that's going on. And so we, we end up vegging in front of social media. And the mm-hmm. problem is whether you're reading, you know, you're, you're just reading the news, that's depressing enough, um, or getting in the, you know, all the political squabbles or the conspiracy theories or whatever, whether it's that or whether it's reading other stories of, of, uh, of, from autism blogs or whatever else it is, you're adding on to the weight. You're adding on to the what ifs. Your, your brain is going into the scenarios of the stories you're reading. And uh, we can only take so much of that. Like it's good to be informed, but at some point it becomes toxic to your soul to keep ingesting, to keep consuming. Well, in our house, you don't get a phone until you drive, which is a little complicated with Jack right now because he doesn't drive. And so we're going to, he's lurking. He can hear me. Okay, Jack. So he's putting my sign up. This is call in progress in magic marker. So you don't get a phone until you're 16. And my daughter, who is 13, is desperate for one. Mm -hmm. And I feel for her, you know, it's this balance of like, is she going to, is she going to just be an old maid when she's 60? Because I didn't let her get that phone and Snapchat. And we talked about it the other day. And I said, this is how I look at it. Your home is your safe place. When you get home from school or wherever you were, this is where we shut the world out a little bit. And if you have that device that is dinging at you and reminding you and people are texting you, you don't have a safe place anymore to just breathe. And I mean, hopefully it resonated. Another thing I didn't do purposely, but looking back, I'm so grateful I did. I never, since I had a phone, my phone never goes upstairs. So again, it's a little, it's a breathing space. I create little breathing spaces for myself. I was in yoga the other day, mentally scrolling through what my Facebook feed had looked like that day. And, and the simplest thing it occurred to me, again, I'm not brilliant, but it occurred to me, I'm choosing what I'm taking in. I chose to follow these people who are on rants about masks. I can unfollow them. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I, I almost didn't know. 
I had to give myself permission. They're not going to miss me. I don't have anything to add anyway. I can choose what stories I put into my life. Yeah. It was really eye-opening for me. My oldest son is very into CrossFit. And sometimes we worry a little bit about his balance with nutrition and, and working out. And then he said, mom, he does have a phone and he has Instagram. He said, all my Instagram feed is like these keto recipes and these bodybuilders. And I was able to say to him, see, that's, this is what I, the narrative I just told myself. We, we can choose what we see and how we feed our soul. And, um, you know, put in some fun cupcake bakers, put in some fun, you know what I mean? Do something yeah. to switch it up. Oh, that's excellent. That's excellent. And, th and this is, you know, sort of brings us back to the writing and create, th create stories, put stories out that actually are going to build people up instead yeah. of tear them down. Yes. And, and this is something that you do so well. And it's, it's something, um, this is where I feel, I feel a lot of affinity with you in this because um, I think both of us have tried really hard to stay away from some of the sort of intramural squabbles that happen in this community, yeah. which are legion. There's landmines everywhere. And uh, I think we both have been careful to, to try to like, look, it's not about these things. It's the, the, the communication, the terminology, all these things change and they'll continue to change. There's always going to be things to scream about. So how can you, how can you uh, advocate for your son and for other people on the spectrum in a way that that's uplifting to everybody. And you have chosen to do that through story. Mm -hmm. You've chosen to do that by writing uh, and writing with beauty, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. That's, that's something, uh, you know, I, I, it, a lot of people just write stuff and put it out there. Here's my story. And that's valuable, but I love the way you craft and you put thought into how you're going to do it. And you repeatedly come to the world, to the internet and say, this is Jack. I don't know how many times I've seen that little sentence. This is Jack. And uh, coming again. And that has been the way that you've advocated. And I think it's beautiful. It's not, I, there, there, there's a place for some of the more in your face stuff. But I feel like this is, uh, I feel like this is the most effective to be able to introduce the world to a very real boy, to a very real family, to very real conversations. And I feel like it is so effective. Tell me about your writing process and your, your, your desire to advocate through story. Well, I swear I'm a natural storyteller. I love to tell us. I love yeah, a good joke. Too. I love a story around the table. That's like really lights me up inside. And um, my journey with my son has forced me to really scrutinize the concept of advocacy and what does it mean to me? And it means simply one four letter word, tell, mm. just tell, tell in a way that's respectful to him and respects everybody else in our life. And I think, I think I've learned most that you will never change another person's mind by being in their face, mm -hmm. by pushing your words into them. It's aggressive and nobody's mind has ever been changed through aggression. So I, I keep that very close to me that all I have to do is offer what we have and hope someone will see a piece of themselves in it. Mm. Whether they have autism um, in their life or not, see a piece of yourself in my mother's journey, in my mistakes, in my um, drive to make him be the best version of Jack he can be. So that drives me every single day. Mm. 
every once in a while I'm lucky enough to be invited to talk to little kids about creative writing, which is so ridiculous. That's I, awesome. It's fun. They're very fun. Oh, don't sell yourself short. Like, it's not ridiculous. You've written two books. You've blogged every week for however many years you just, I mean, come on, you have a lot to say and you're a phenomenal writer. Like, I just want to say to our listeners, Thank don't, you. she's Thank being you. overly humble. She has a lot to say about creative writing. It's one thing to do and another to teach, but I do have a lot of fun with it. And I always close it no matter the age. I say, you know, there's that saying, dance like nobody's watching dance with abandon and joy and just light yourself up from the inside out i said it is the opposite you have to write like everyone is reading mm. and that's how i edit my work and it's second nature now i don't have to like right be so critical anymore but it was like what could somebody take from this angle is this helping our further jack in any way in the world yeah so that, those are the things I just keep in mind. And it's, um, I, I love it so much. Nothing, nothing fires me up like a good story or a good blog or something. Yeah. I, 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 I also say, you know, writing is basically taking an experience that happened to you and just wrapping it up into, into a gift to give to someone else to That's relate to. That's a great way to think about it. Yeah. I had, I had sat through a, uh, uh, at, a, at a writing workshop one time, uh, the speaker uh, had, had said something to the effect of, he said, essays are battering rams, stories are Trojan horses. Oh, I love that. Isn't that good? Yeah, I think yeah. It was Matt, Matt Michelados had, had said, that's the, the yeah. author's name. And that has always stuck with me. And I think you, you can see that in terms of the way that people uh, get into heated debates on Facebook and these things and how those views are almost never changed almost mm -hmm. never changed. But no, when you bring never. someone a story and you simply relate life, you simply relate experiences, which will, I'm such a big fan of fiction, of, of reading fiction for that reason, because suddenly you're getting all these different points of view that you never had before. And it creates empathy and it, it actually grows your heart and your mind in some, some new ways. So I, I, I love the way you do that. Thank you. Another piece of it, you know, sometimes people will say, how can you share so much? I'm a, you know, I'm somebody that lives out loud anyway, that's natural for me, but I think effective writing, you have, if you're a memoirist or something along that route line or a blogger, you have to be willing to be vulnerable. Yes. It's not always easy. For me, it's not hard, but I can imagine for people who are more private sharing a story of, you know, failure or the mistakes you made, or, you know, I, I broke my son's Kindle by hitting it too hard on the counter last week. And so... But I refuse to believe that there's people out there that aren't living exactly the way I am. Yeah, yeah. And to be able to tell both sides, it's really important. I mean, it, it's, I think people, where they mess up with, with transparency in their writing is getting so mired sometimes in the hard stuff that I, I don't really believe it anymore. Or I start thinking, wait, where's... Where's the good too? Like, or it's not that it's not that there's always a balance, but I tell people the reason I am honest um, about where I'm at in, in my, in, you know, in my writing. And I, I, I put stuff out there just like you, you know, just sort of like, okay, here, here's my life. Here's the way I have screwed up. Please do not do what I did. Right. Let me be a cautionary tale. Yeah. So the reason I, I had, you know, a couple of times during the pandemic, I had these kind of depressing things that I put out, but I'm like, look, I'm telling you it's really hard right now, but the reason I'm telling you is because I want you to believe me when I tell you that things are good. 
I, I, I want you to see this is a real life. And if we're going to walk together, even if you're going to have a window into my world, I want you to believe that this is real and believe that it's true. So when I tell you, here's the joy I find, mm-hmm. um, here is, here's the rest I've found. Um, I want you to see that this is real and that I'm not drumming it up. And, you know, obviously I'm a pastor, so I, I'm, you know, I, I write with a lot of, of Christian themes infused. And I know the way that Christian writing can be, that it can be like sort of this pie in the sky. Oh, it's, and it's so fake. And I'm like, I refuse to go there. I refuse to do that. I'm going to show you, this is not easy. This is hard, but you're not alone. Right. And when we manufacture moments, people can see through that. Yes. And I think um, the other probably as a pastor, you really understand this because you have to stand up in front of a crowd and put yourself out there without a lot of feedback, I would imagine in the moment. Right. As a writer with social media, I made it a point a long time ago. I heard another blogger use this phrase. I thought it was beautiful. I don't babysit my work. I like to look through the comments and I love to see if if people are engaging with it, but I am not going to go on and argue with somebody. I am not going to make them... I write it for other people to interpret as they will. Mm. And I'm not going to insist that my point of view is what they should take from it. And that's that's very freeing. I mean, as we talked about earlier, I could have been intentional about a bigger platform. Who knows if this might be it for me, basically. But I didn't want to put my energy into that side of it. Yeah. To creating content all the time and to always be kind of on that hamster wheel wasn't wasn't where I was. Yeah. You don't want to feed the beast as they say. Kind of. Yeah. (laughs) I'm feeding enough beasts over here. (laughs) (laughs) I got enough meals to make here. (laughs) Your wife is done with the cooking. I'm so done with cooking. Yeah. We've been doing a lot of uh, very, very simple things in our house for quite a while. The, yeah, it's been a strange, strange season. Um, I know like Kate had asked you the same question, so forgive me, I'm totally stealing this, but I love some of the Jack-isms that you post. Every I just, I go by and I'll, I'll start laughing, I'll show my wife, look at this, this is great. Can you give us a few of your favorites? Well, the NBA one the other day was really great. Yes, can you share that with, I loved, loved this one. Sure, so he told his bus driver that I was in the NBA. And I said, and why would you tell Eddie that I'm in the NBA? And he says, that, and he's very an automated speaker. He doesn't have a lot of nuance to his tone. Um, why? Would, um, for that is what you say when you are mad to put our dishes in the sink. You say, I'm in the NBA. And I said, no, I said, I have an MBA. <laughs> MBA. And he said, it's the same thing. one i've been meaning to post but but it's a little older is jack so with covid two of jack's greatest joys have been taken away the movie theater Uh. and eating out in restaurants that is he just loves that but i remember that one of the few times we went to the movies right before COVID. (laughs) this is embarrassing but we had brought candy i had it in my purse (laughs) you snuck it in (laughs) i'm probably gonna forget that so we went up to the to give our tickets and he said to the guy we don't need your candy my mother has <laughs> he outed you oh. oh it is you know <laughs> so what did the guy say he just let us in <laughs> <laughs> 
I had five kids with me. He was not going to trifle. He was like, I don't want to get your refreshments anyway. That, would that is awesome. Awesome. And can or, you, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Yo, just one time, my, my husband's niece came over. She was young and adorable, but she was like in this skin tight outfit. And she says, Jack, how do I look? And I thought, oh my God, somebody give him like a piece of food or a lollipop or a cigarette, something to put in his mouth so <laughs> we don't have to hear what he's about to say. And he said, you look squeezed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I'm going to think about that now, that description. I'm, oh, that is so good. That's so good. He is a really, you know, he's very entertaining without knowing it, right? Right, right. <laughs> um, can, you, can you tell us a, a, about the, uh, his, uh, his communion? You had just posted this recently. <gasps> I did write about that. Yes. And so Kate, she's mean. She wants me to write about current events. But like we just talked about, I don't want to like jump into those waters of debate. I don't want to debate. So all I can do is take a current event that had, you know, touched me and create it into a, what if this was Jack or this could have been Jack. So that's where that, why I reshared that story recently. But Oh, the days leading up to Jack's communion, we, we had rehearsals that we had to go to for like two hours a day. And he was off the wall, hiding under chairs. We couldn't get him to, you know, practice walking down the aisle. Um, he was really terrified about the idea of Jesus being in him. Obviously, anybody, really, we all should be kind of terrified about it. So. <laughs> He especially was like, I don't want Jesus in me. <laughs> I don't care how tasty that disc is. Right, right. You know, that's where I really met some exceptional people because there was this woman who was a little bit older and she was a, you know, she was one of those very strict Catholic people and she allowed us to take the hosts home, which my understanding is like not really allowed. And we practiced here at home with him. I was a total wreck the morning of his communion because I thought, you know, as any kid with autism can do, they could destroy the entire event with one meltdown in a ch church full of 300 people. But he, you know, he got his suit on, he danced down that aisle and he threw that host back like it was a, a Pringle, a Pringle chip. He said, God is in me now. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, Very just cool. when you think he's not going to do something or not going to do the right thing, yeah. he shows up. And that's yeah. what I remind myself all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, last question that we like to ask. This is the Aching Joy podcast. What, what is it that, that gives you joy in, the, you know, in, the, in, the, in those moments where things are overwhelming? Yeah. Where do you find joy? Moments overwhelming with autism or just in general? You know what? Let's go broad. Let's go big. Where do I find joy? Well, I'm a huge avid yoga person. So mm -hmm. um, that practice forces me again and again to return to what is essential. That's what I ask myself, what is essential and what serves me? And when I'm able to kind of strip away the distractions, it's yeah. really a very short list. You know, being with the kids and laughing at the dinner table really serves me. Yeah. Um, writing really serves me. Reading really serves me. Kissing my husband at the end of the day really serves me. So the practice of, of cleaning house, so you will, and getting to those points is definitely where I find my, my points of joy. Cleaning the kitchen over and over does not serve me. <laughs> I find that some of the things we think that serve us don't actually. Right. And it's, it's getting to those places when we can see them, understand them. And we keep going back to social media. But that can be a trap for so many of us because it was like, oh, this, I just want to veg. And then an hour later, you feel so 
dirty. You're like, Ooh, yeah, like, toxins. It's that, toxins. Yeah, There's like so many yeah. better ways to relax. I think. Yes. Um, and I do. Please, I love dumpster fire television. Like I love Real Housewives <laughs> of Potomac. I love some of that. You know, with COVID, as you were, I'm sure Emily came home for that, right? So you were a family of seven. Yeah, no, she, she just now graduated. So she's, oh, she's staying home. Yeah. We were seven people under one roof. We have a lovely house and it suits us really, really well. But again, back to boundaries. I had to say, this is what I'm going to need moving forward. I need a clean kitchen when I go to bed and when I get up in the morning. You know, I'm not afraid to ask for what I need because I, I'll never assume these people can infer it for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. The other tr great thing about remote learning I want to add is my husband's a dentist, but he has rental properties that were empty at the time for all last spring. And after we went to shelter in place, he and his practice closed down. So he said, I, I want to let me handle remote learning. Let me just do it all. And who am I to argue with that? So he took those kids to those offices every day from eight to three. And they learned there. And so I was just home on my Kindle, like, <laughs> what can I read? Nice. Yeah. Nice. Very cool. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a great conversation. And yes. uh, I hope that people will, will take to heart what you're saying, especially the stuff about self-care, I think is so important um, that we recognize where we're at and, and how much we're, we're caring. So thank you for putting something good into the world consistently thank and you. not adding to the noise, but, but giving us music, because I think that's what your writing is. It's, it's oh, music. Oh, thank you. Likewise to you. Thank you so much, Carrie. If you guys want to follow Carrie, she's all over Facebook. Um, she is at her website, CarrieCarrieLO.com, and she's doing regular writing at Finding Cooper's Voice as well. Plus, you can find her books, What Color is Monday, and uh, Someone I'm With Has Autism on Amazon.com. And thank you guys for listening or watching, even, for this experiment. We'll see if we try to do it again. Um, you can, uh, uh, I hope, continue to follow me right here at Jason Haig writer on Facebook, uh, my website, jasonhaig.com or through my book, aching joy, following God through the land of unanswered prayer. And if you enjoyed this today, I would love it if you would leave me a review on iTunes. Cause that actually really helps people learn about the podcast. So anyway, thank you guys. Have a wonderful week and thank you, Carrie.